The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Headline, legendarily unpopular politician, still unpopular. Even after breaking the law? Yes, still maintaining his levels of unpopularity. NPR has the report. A majority of Americans do not want former President Donald Trump to run again in 2024. Those findings from a new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll. The number is 61%. 61% of Americans don't want Donald Trump to run. And why is this news? How is this news? A president who got only the minority of the vote who entered office with an approval rating below 50%, who left office with a Gallup poll showing that 34% of the public approved of him, now registers in this poll as having the backing of 33% of Americans. Huge news. 5%, by the way, unsure. I get it. Waiting for all the data to come in. Don't want to make a rash judgment, yay or nay, on Donald J. Trump. You know, I blame it on, I hate to do it, but it's the fault of the lamestream media. So lame, that lamestream media, NPR, Pishaw, PBS. Ooh, I'm watching Masterpiece Theater on a Tuffet. Marist College, yeah, hoity-toity, red foxes, but not the kind who lives in their junkyard. You can't trust them. Let's get real polls from a real politician. Here's Senator Rick Scott fielding actually tough questions on Fox. Scott predicting success for Wisconsin incumbent Ron Johnson, where the last three polls have Johnson trailing by two, four, and seven points. Let's look at the numbers. You know, we, we're gonna keep our we're gonna keep our hardest races to keep. Ron Johnson's gonna win. We invested with him He's early. He needed that early. Five points right now, right? Yeah. So Ron Johnson's either tied or up a little bit or down barely. Yeah, that's what you need to know. He's either up, down, or tied. Thank you. And you can take that to the bank or the credit union or stuff it under a mattress, or light it on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott was on to answer for Fox viewers something that they're quite invested in, namely how the National Republican Senatorial Committee, of which Scott is the head, pretty much wasted all their money and isn't spending any money on senatorial campaigns. The New York Times reported quite persuasively that the committee spent a lot early in order to identify donors for the future. And having identified them, they have discovered that these donors are not going to donate more than the committee spent to find them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe repeated evidence that Trump is just making off with these donations uh, shrinks potential largesse. Maybe these potential funders would have given more, but their money is all tied up in the Steve Bannon wall building project that now apparently Steve Bannon has been indicted for in New York. Although I get my information from the lame stream media. The streams are so lame, barely a trickle, really. But they got us. Where else are you going to go to find out if your favorite Paul is up, down, tied up, has his mistress tied up, that's Missouri's governor race, or is bogged down in an investigation. I guess there is no other choice. Right, Senator Scott? Yeah. Yeah. On the show today, court school jewel for failure to follow rule, but first, Susan Orlean isn't just the author of nine books, including bestsellers The Orchid Thief and The Library Book. She's not just one of The New Yorker's best writers. She is now also the co-host of the Book Exploder podcast, which dives into the inner workings of the writer's mind. Up next, Susan Orlean. 
The podcast series Song Exploder to me is like a magic trick revealed. He either, and by he I mean the host, uh, Risha K. Sherway, either takes a song I knew and reveals elements of it that I couldn't possibly know or introduces me to a song which is a different type of alchemy but still like I said, magical. Now, they've taken that exquisitely crafted show, given it to a fantastic writer and thinker, Susan Orlean, and said, hey, do this with books. And so she has. Song Exploder has become Book Exploder. Susan Orlean is here with me. Thanks for coming on The Gist. I'm thrilled to be with you. Were you a fan of Song Exploder when it was only songs? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, a as you say, it either introduces you to music you didn't know through this kind of magical little portal, or it, it reveals this creative process and yet doesn't undercut the magic of this, you know, piece of art. So I love listening to it. I love the the sort of bite size nature of it. So when Rishi came to me and said, what if we do this with books? I immediately thought, absolutely. Now, the challenge is with Song Exploder, it ends with, and now here's the song, and we hear all of the three to six minute song with books that wouldn't really work and it would probably get into copyright and Audible wouldn't like it. So how do you decide? So it's an excerpt, a pretty short excerpt. How do you decide which ones you're going to talk about? Uh, well, the way that we went about it really was we first thought of which writers we wanted to talk to. And then from there, which work of theirs we wanted to talk about. And then, you know, sort of narrowing it, the focus even further, we usually went to them and said, is there a passage that was particularly hard to write or particularly, you know, strange in some way to write, or or maybe that was really um, exemplified the way you went about writing the book. And in every instance, they, the writers we approach had a section that they wanted to talk about. Mm. Uh, so we didn't have to say, hey, what about this particular section and you know we went with the understanding that unlike song exploder as you said we weren't going to then have nine hours of the audiobook unfolding but i also felt that by the focus being so narrow it didn't require that you had the overview of the whole book it really was about the mechanical an inspirational process leading to this particular passage. I mean, I think our hope was that people would become interested enough that they might say, well, now I want to go read that book. But it was as much about the mechanics of a creative decision as it is about the plot of the book. I mean, it, in a way, the plots of the books didn't didn't matter that much. Mm -hmm. Had you read all the books beforehand? Yeah, I had. And so I was coming to it with them being books that I was particularly fond of. 
Were you surprised by some of the choices? Having read these books, did Celeste Ang or George Sanders said this passage and you said, really, that passage? Or as a professional writer, maybe you took a second and said, ah, that makes sense. Well, in each case, it made sense, but I was surprised in each instance because although sometimes people picked exactly what I would have picked. Um, and and this was very funny because for our first episode, we decided that Rishi would interview me about a passage in the library book. And that would provide a bridge from song exploder to book exploder. And he said to me, okay, you have to pick your passage. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And finally he said, all right, do you want me to pick it for you? And I said, yes, because I just couldn't narrow it down. And he ended up picking probably the passage I would have picked. The temperature reached 451 degrees and the books began smoldering. Their covers burst like popcorn. Pages flared and blackened and then sprang away from their bindings, a ream of sooty scraps soaring on the updraft. I mean, you've written, what, nine or ten books? Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) I find it shocking even to say that, but yes. Because it seems to me that a seasoned writer who knows the circuit of getting out there and doing public events and selling uh, her books has a passage, a go-to, that they might read for public readings. And it would I would assume that if someone came to me with the song exploder assignment, they'd immediately go to that you know, quote unquote, go to passage. But that wasn't the case for you in this one. Well, I I mean, yes and no. I have go to passages that I now can practically recite by heart because I do them all the time. And you choose those for their oral quality. For Book Exploder, that isn't uh, antithetical to what we're looking for. But We were also curious to look for passages that maybe presented a a writing challenge that was peculiar in certain and in some way or or where the writer had to really work it out in some way that would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, just as in Song Exploder, the songs they talk about aren't necessarily their first encore or showstopper number. Or when I I remember on the Netflix show, he interviewed Lin-Manuel Miranda and the song they played from Hamilton wasn't what they call in Broadway. What is it? The quarter to 10 number? (laughs) The real big rabble rouser uh, was quieter. That's somewhat similar to in Book Exploder. It might not be the one that plays best out loud to an audience in a performance. Well, exactly. Although it's, um, I think there's no doubt that the passages that we chose or the, the author chose are ones that kind of lift up out of the book, that they're special in some way. Um, for instance, when I read from the library book, I very often read a section that's more first person mm-hmm. because I feel like with an audience, It's about going to the library with my mom and the memories as a child of these weekly visits to the library. And it's a wonderful passage to read to an audience because almost everybody shares that experience. 
the passage that I talked about with Rishi was a real writing challenge. And I often read that to audiences too, but I never begin with that passage because it's about the, um, the library book is about the largest library fire in American history that took place here in LA in 1986. And there's a long passage in which I describe the path of the fire through the library. First of all, it would be sort of a bummer to begin at a speaking engagement reading about 400,000 books being burned. Right, right. We know one thing about everyone in the crowd. You all love books. And now here, here now the book Holocaust. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I remember when my book first came out, just as an aside, my son and I were looking at some of the Amazon reviews, which is something I advise against. But one of the reviews was, who would burn a library? One star. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> That really tests the whole premise of every interpretation is right. New am I to tell them they're reading it wrong. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the democratic uh, nature of online reviewing being put to the test. Yeah. So in Song Exploder, m many of the delightful moments come when they're discussing uh, technical aspects to achieving a sound. Like the guy from Franz Ferdinand talking about how he listened to arena rock or sports rock and there would there would be a cymbal grab, like an eye of the tiger, how you wouldn't let the cymbal reverb. And they wanted to put that in uh, Take Me Out. And then you say, I've never thought of that before. That's amazing. But it's very technical, and it's how to get a certain sound. Is there an equivalent of that? There can be, I would imagine, an equivalent of that either dealing with uh, the sound of the words or drawing from an existing unexpected source. But did you elicit any of that in your interviews for Book Exploder? Well, a, a little bit. And, you know, music, writing music and writing um, prose are not absolutely analogous. I mean, they have a lot in common, but the technical stuff is very different. And obviously you don't have a toolkit of uh, a synthesizer and the whole range of instruments and sounds. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that it can be a little harder for writers to um, break down choices since a lot of those choices really are, you know, choices you make in the flow of the moment. I think a lot of times what happens, and I think that it's absolutely legitimate, is that you are looking retros retrospectively and saying, oh, well, I guess I was motivated to do this because I was trying to create this effect or that effect. Right. It was interesting when I talked to Min Jin Lee about Pachinko and this one passage where she chose a lot of white imagery. And, you know, she can explain overall very clearly why white imagery was useful in that scene to create this sense of this man who was sort of holding himself above the fray. 
But I think in the moment when she was writing it, she was probably being carried along by something much more subconscious. Right. Although with musicians, they sometimes have this flash of inspiration and don't know why, and then can go back and say, oh, you know where this may be coming from? Uh, I heard a lot of this kind of sound in the early blues music or, or I was listening to, or maybe without even knowing it, I was borrowing from this kind of music I listened to as a kid. That that can happen too. Right. And, and I do think that that's where music talking about creating music and creating literature are very different and also music exists both lyrically and musically so you already have these two different channels of information that are being created so right. they are but i think what rishi and i are both very interested in is um first of all just how really good creative work gets made, but also how individual specific discrete choices build up to a piece of work that you experience as a whole. You know, I think that when you read a book that you love, you, you're carried along by the experience of the book and you're not sitting there pulling apart sentences going, well, I love that adjective choice that was so good i mean i don't think any creative person wants you to feel those choices right right i think they want you to experience the um the work as a whole and not as those individual choices. Well, the same with music, right? Dave Grohl will very fascinatingly tell you that the opening uh, snares to Smells Like Teen Spirit were inspired by the Gap Band. And if you go back and you listen to it, you're like, oh my God, and your brain is uh, exploded as it were. But, you know, no one wants no one wants you to hear that or necessarily have your mind dwell on that when you're just rocking out to a Nirvana song. Right. And in fact, it would be very distracting if you heard it and thought, oh, wow, that sounds just like the Gap Band. Oh, wait, now I'm in the middle of a punk song. I mean, yeah, it would ruin the experience. I think. Which, which, by the way, you have put your finger on why I do not like that Sean Puffy Combs song that's in tribute to Biggie Smalls, which is just just rips off a Led Zeppelin song. And that's all I'm ever hearing is just some talking on top of uh, Cashmere, I think it is. Right. And I think that that. Oh, God. I mean. If you're going to rip one off, you might as well rip that off. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you don't want, I mean, that's part of the nature of really having a transcendent experience, either reading or listening to music, is you are lifted off into a holistic um, experience of a piece of creative work. You're not stopping at each and every decision in the writing and going, mm, interesting. I mean, that's a very intellectualized, I mean, that's why, honestly, um, criticism can be so stultifying because, you know, that pressure to break down why it feels this way or why you feel that way, you know, it sort of ruins it for you. Yes, 
But if I were to ask you about a sentence like, yes, an estimated 23 American households adopted dogs during the pandemic, but the hot dogs being grabbed were for the most part young and fluffy and didn't look like wombats. We could point out that you, and that is a something that you wrote for The New Yorker, part of this series of obits you're doing, you uh, use the um, technique of polysyndeton. I don't know if that helps anyone understand it better, but why? What were you going for there? What's the, uh, what's the way to analyze? I, I mean, I love that, especially the second half of that sentence. But can you look back and break down the difference between just the inspiration and flow of the moment and why you think it works so well on the page? Yeah, well, and that's the great challenge. I mean, I knew that there was a very good joke in there with the phrase hot dog. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, the fact is that, number one, I had a piece of information to deliver, which was that there was this enormous number of dogs adopted during the pandemic. I was writing an obituary for this very homely um, but lovable dog who had just passed away. And part of the marvel of the story was that he ever got adopted because he was so homely and he was also elderly at the time that he was um put up for adoption so i love taking this rather dry piece of information 23 million dogs adopted during the pandemic and then sort of sliding sideways into what is a corny but fabulous joke the hot dogs um right you know, about the dogs that were being adopted most readily during the pandemic. It, you know, I like the high-low. I like the coupling, the the sort of mundane but important piece of information with something that is lyrical and funny and that takes you onto another plane. I have to say, your sensitivity to the feelings of a deceased dog via your written description of him, I think if you didn't have that, if you didn't feel that you didn't want to be mean, it wouldn't be as good a piece. Right. Well, I feel it's true. And it's interesting writing these obituaries because in a way you are given license to be as kind of to to let it fly however you want. I mean within the legal bounds, of course, but... Well, they say dead dogs still, can't sue. Right. Well, you know, I don't want to find out. <laughs> I, I'd rather leave that as an assumption. So for Book Exploder, how many are scheduled and might uh, the ambition expand? Well, we've got um, eight in the can, and um, we've had such a great time doing it uh, whether we will do another season or not is sort of a, a conversation we're having. Um, to me, it's an infinitely um, kind of flexible, adaptive approach to thinking about writing, about creative work. So I think it would be really fun to continue it. So we'll we'll see. Susan Orlean is the author of, among other things, The Orchid Thief, the library book. She is the host of Book Exploder, which is in the Song Exploder podcast feed. Susan, great talking to you. 
Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. And now the spiel. If it seems like I'm on edge lately, well, now you know why. Following some breaking news now, electronic cigarette maker Juul Labs has agreed to pay nearly $440 million. This is part of a settlement with 34 states and territories. It's all surrounding the product's marketing, specifically targeting teenagers. I can't get my fix of raspberry bubblegum vape. I've been jonesing to put an electric stick of banana strawberry swirl between my lips and suck, just like Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not. You know how to vape off a mint licorice jewel, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. Or possibly suck. I've never vaped. Jewel Labs. Jewel Labs. You got to say it with the ooh, because it has two U's. They kind of lost me with the two U's, but they got me back with the Labs part. Very serious. And they're seriously paying $438 million. That's million with an M to 33 states and Puerto Rico on top of the 87 million they paid to four states. So what have we learned? The four states lawyers seem better because, you know, if you go by the cash per state calculation, they got more. But also the lesson is you just can't in America today, you can't entice kids with those sweet, sweet flavors. Kids love the sweet flavors. Which come in flavors like watermelon and blue raz. Fruit, mint, and desserty cigarette flavors. Blueberry cobbler to strawberry lemonade. Jewel on their website responded in November 2018, they write, in response to a reported increase in youth use of vapor products, we suspended the sale of mango, fruit, cucumber, and cream flavored Jewel in retail. In 2019, October, we suspended the online sale of mango, fruit, cucumber, and cream flavored Jewel pods on Jewel.com. Okay, so for a year, they wouldn't sell them in retail stores to teens who have never heard of a retail store, in November 19th. However, they suspended the sale of mint-flavored Jewel Pods in retail and on the dot-com. And then in July 2020, they suspended the sale of classic tobacco-flavored Jewel Pods in retail and on Jewel.com. I don't know actually what they have left. What are they still selling? I think Altria, who bought Jewel for 30, uh, I think it was $38 billion, with the valuation now at $1.3 billion, is also wondering, what is exactly our business model? Is it just paying out lawsuits to states and having an ever-decreasingly robust e-commerce site? Yeah, goes back to the kids and the flavors. Oh, they love the flavors. They have the Snozzleberry and the Sniz Fizzle and the Choco Doco Duncans. I could just hear the pitch from their spokes character. She'd be a cross between Joe Camel and Willy Wonka and that futuristic pink-haired girl from the Icelandic children television show Lonely Town. You know who else loves the flavors, however, besides the kids? Turns out everyone. Humans. People. Penn State has researched what gets people into vaping, and the answer is, in large part, the flavors. Here's Penn State professor Jonathan Folds in a video which, for some reason, has your daily affirmation, hike before breakfast, inspirational music behind it. Our research has followed a large number of adult, long-term e-cigarette users who were former smokers. So we are, we've been following a group of people who've successfully quit smoking and switch to e-cigarettes. So we know that that can be a step in the right direction. What Folds is saying is 
that can be a step in the right direction. That is literally what he's saying. I wasn't sure you could hear the Scottish accent above the guy reaching a craggy peak and breathing in the cool mountain air and thinking, thanks, Chantix. But PSU, Penn State University, and its Cancer Research Center have done a lot of work and examination of e-cigarettes, more so than even a TJF waiter out back on a five-minute break. And they have surveyed e-cigarette users at a couple times, once between 2012 and 2014, and then between 2017 and 2019. And they say, oh, what changed about your preferred flavors? And it turns out the people started vaping in tobacco flavor, they fell off. They didn't stop vaping. They changed flavors to more fruity flavors. Fruit flavors and fun flavors and sweet flavors went like this. The fruit flavors essentially remain stable. 23% in each survey preferred the fruit flavors. But the chocolate candy or sweet flavors increased from 16% to 29%, quite an increase. By the way, the flavor preference was indeed classified using the Penn State three-step flavor classification method. I told you these guys are serious. I'm not exactly sure what the Penn State three-step flavor classification method is. You take your flavored vape, you stick it in some gum, you twirl it around in pixie dust, and then yum, 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 yum. By the way, they had to, this was in the abstract that I read of their survey, do cinnamon red hots count as a candy or a spice? The answer is a candy. But when you think about it, of course adults like the flavors, the same as adolescents like the flavors, because we live in America, and the adults we are talking about are Americans. And American adults are essentially adolescents. Cargo shorts and Comic-Con and the word adulting used by a 28-year-old and Disney Plus announcing that over 50% of their subscribers do not have kids. It's something of a paradox. Marvel movies are for children, but the adults who love them most are least likely to be tapped for reproductive purposes. Worst stereotype ever. You're right, comic book guy. A kid, but I love. But you still have to admit that it's not 1962 anymore. The drink of choice isn't a scotch neat. It's a white claw sloppy. And Juul quite clearly wasn't selling all of its $38 billion worth of e-cigs to just teens. Furthermore, sidelining Juul, you know what it did? It just opened the schoolhouse gates to a new flavor player, Puff Bar, which uses synthetic nicotine to skirt FDA rules. See if you can tell the ages of the Puff Bar average user from the voices and tone of these TikTok videos and also the fact that they're TikTok videos. Just found this fresh new Puff Bar still packed. Thanks to whoever left it there for me. A Puff Bar that has light in colors. Yes or no? But how do people smoke a 3,500 Puff Bar in like two, three days? This motherfucker wants a Puff Bar so bad. There's legit a fucking active crime scene right here. So while Jewel was busy taking a rap on the knuckles, Puff isn't even made to have a timeout in the naughty chair. And the result is that fewer people, adults, teen, everyone, is using e-cigarettes. So that's a good thing, right? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Folds and other researchers cite pretty compelling evidence that the majority of e-cigarette users have transitioned from much, much more dangerous light-with-fire type cigarettes or cigarettes or whatever you call them, cancer sticks, transitioned from those very bad ones to the much less bad 
e-cigarettes. It is an example of a groundswell of public sentiment and political incentivization against the villain of the moment without properly considering the true public health consequences of reaching for the lowest hanging fruit, even if that fruit is a delicious mango blueberry nectarine. Though I do think we are all mature enough to realize that this is the case. Now let us don our cute rompers, jump on the razor scooter, and make it to our adult kickball league. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the senior research associate slash scientist where she has to exhibit hands-on experience in aseptic cell culture techniques, experience with fluorescence, microscopy, and plant-based assays, and experience with receptor biology. And in exchange, benefits she receives include a place to grow your career at Jewel Labs, equity and performance bonuses, and boundless snacks and drinks. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.